You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, who is the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka? Not a pub quiz question, but a growing crisis. My guests James Rogers and Isabel Hilton will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including in the UK, an investigation into where the Brexit campaign's money came from, in Ukraine, a religious schism with political undertones, and in Taiwan... The Capitals Mayor launches a parallel career as a rapper. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are James Rogers, Head of International Journalism Studies at City University London, and Isabel Hilton, Editor of China Dialogue and former Latin American Affairs Correspondent. Welcome both. We will start in Sri Lanka, a country presently not entirely clear on who its Prime Minister is. Last week, President Mathripala Sirisena dismissed Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe and installed in his place Mahinda Rajapaska, himself a former President. Mr Wickremesinghe has declined, however, to obey his marching orders. He insists that he has the support of Sri Lanka's parliament and is refusing to leave the prime ministerial residence. This would be a suboptimal situation in any country, but in Sri Lanka, still rebuilding and recovering from decades of civil war, it is potentially dangerous. Some protests have already been fatally violent. Um, Isabel, how clear is it possible to be on exactly what has gone on here? (laughs) The, well, because it's, it's one of those stories in which the actual participants seem somewhat bewildered. We do know who's president. That's one thing. For the moment. <laughs> For the moment. Sirisena's president. Sirisena um, defeated Rajapaska in 2015, you may remember. I do. This On, is the man he has now installed as prime minister. That's the man he wants to install as prime minister. And, and no doubt his supporters would say he has. He, he defeated him on a platform of anti-corruption, uh, abuse of human rights, you know, uh, taking money from the Chinese getting into terrible debt problems with the port of Hambantota, which then had to be handed back to the Chinese. So that was his argument. Um, So three years ago, he was introducing this man as a crook and a human rights abuser in the pocket of China. And now he's trying to make him prime minister. Indeed. Well, that's uh, making perfect sense. Well, yes, you're you're with me so far. It it makes perfect sense to all the people who campaigned for him, who are now angry and fed up and are trying to uh, trying to stop him, stop Rajapaksa being installed as prime minister. Uh, there has been a very toxic relationship on a personal level uh, between uh, Sirisena and Wickraman Singh, and and you know a lot of quite very public slights over the years. Uh, the feeling is that the prime minister hasn't done the president's bidding, and that he's finally lost patience and wants to replace him. The trouble is that half the country sees this as a very bad move indeed, all those who voted uh, for Sirisena against Rajapaksa in 2015. And they've been surrounding the buildings and refusing, you know, in in support, including lots of Buddhist monks, you know, beating up Buddhist monks is not a good look for any president. So you have a a lot of uh, ordinary voters and and supporters um, uh, uh, trying to prevent the ouster of Wickramansinghe and his his ministers. Meanwhile, the president 
called uh, his own party to a meeting um, and then tried to turn it into a constitutional affair by making them uh, swear allegiance to the new prime minister, as it were, Rajapaksa. Uh, James, it is it is quite a circus uh, as these things go. One subplot of which, and it, I don't know if it has an enormous bearing on the key dynamic of it, but it is a detail that I think we should acknowledge that Arjuna Ranatunga, former captain of Sri Lanka's cricket team, uh, who is now oil minister for some reason, is under arrest because his bodyguard shot and killed one of the protesters. It, it is one of those stories where... It falls into that category of story, I think, that the more you learn about it, the less sense any of it actually makes. It is. And I think a lot of these stories, you know, in whichever part of the world they, they take place, they start off as a test of power, but they also come to be a test of the political system itself. Because when you've got two people claiming to be prime minister, one person refusing to leave, it is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. As you pointed out in your introduction, this country does have a very serious recent history of political violence uh, and all everyone looking on is hoping that it's not going to go back that way. But it is very difficult to untangle it. And one imagines with the posturing that's going on, it's very difficult for somebody to, to climb down and simply agree to the other's requests without losing considerable face and considerable political capital. Because, Isabel, that's the key point right there, I think. Uh, for any uh, Australian such as myself, uh, there will be vaguely familiar echoes here weirdly. We had a not entirely dissimilar situation in Australia in 1975 when the Prime Minister of the time, Gough Whitlam, was sacked by the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, who installed in his place the leader of the opposition, Malcolm Fraser. In that particular instance, though, in a country with extremely solid, extremely well-respected institutions, though there was and remains uh, a lot of chat that that the Governor-General acted well outside his remit and possibly outside the Constitution, um, nonetheless, everybody went along with that no blood was shed, uh, a general election was held, uh, and the matter was resolved by the people. Uh, Is it clear that Sri Lanka's institutions are sufficiently robust to stand up to something like this? Well, one can always be wrong, but as the neighbourhood goes, Sri Lanka's democracy is relatively long established. Um, And and one of the kind of tones of the argument uh, that's going on at present is that each side is accusing the other of undermining democracy. Uh, The president actually suspended the parliament in order to get his, his... his man in place, you know, and, and, and it does seem as though the parliament supports the existing prime minister, Wickraman Singh. He has now, I think today, uh, suggested that parliament will be restored. So I think that the fear that he would simply go for outright dictatorship has been tempered. He's looking for ways to legitimise uh, his his choice. And, you know, there is, there's still the possibility that Parliament won't sanction this and that, that Parliament will say, no, we're sticking with Wickraman Singer. And then you're going to continue with a rather toxic relationship between the President and the Prime Minister, which isn't optimal, but it's probably a better solution than going for the authoritarian route. But just to follow that up, Isabel, if that if that is what happens, and it turns out that the President can't make his attempt to sack the Prime Minister stick, he's kind of done for as President, isn't he? He has not, had his bluff called. Yes, he has. Um, but I think also if he were to run for an election now, he, he certainly wouldn't, it wouldn't be a shoe in I mean, he has, you know, all the people, as I say, who, who went out 
out and marched for him and demonstrated and voted for him in 2015 are very, very angry. Um, largely, you know, again, because of the human rights abuses. After all, Rajapaska, you know, presided over a really, you know, appalling period in which a lot of people disappeared. This was and the climax of the civil war about eight or nine years ago. Absolutely. And that has never really been accounted for. And that was very much a, a promise in the campaign. Uh, so betraying that, I think, is, is you know, that's, a, that's not easily forgiven. Okay, well, let's look now here at the UK and a development which should at least provide us all with a chuckle as our collective canoe heads towards the rapids. The National Crime Agency is to investigate Leave.eu, the more notably obnoxious of the organisations which campaigned successfully for the UK to exit the European Union before the 2016 referendum. Specifically, the NCA is interested in the finances of Aaron Banks, co-founder of Leave.eu, who donated more than £8 million to the cause. The NCA seems unpersuaded that the money actually belonged to Banks, who describes the allegations as ludicrous and has appended to his statement a characteristically charmless swipe at George Soros for some scarcely imaginable reason. Um, James, how big a deal is this? I think um, it's quite a big deal in terms of the, the potential reputation of Mr Banks, who, as you said, has denied any wrongdoings, dismisses, and I see has uh, tweeted a picture of himself on holiday in Bermuda, uh, where he says he's going fishing. Do we have an uh, extradition treaty with Bermuda? <laughs> <laughs> I suspect he'll probably be planning to come back at some point anyway. Might be be a better option. Um, In terms of hard political consequences, it's very difficult to see actually what those might be. Um, It would have uh, Mr Banks, I say, has denied any wrongdoing. Um, The the investigation will go forward. Um, But it's difficult to see at this stage that there can be any, you know, to borrow your metaphor, any... Any, any move to stop the canoe heading towards the rapids, um, particularly given the length of time that a presumably complex investigation such as this would take. The interesting thing, of course, um, is uh, alleged links to Russia, which some of the media, particularly The Guardian in this country, have done extensive investigations into. Mr Banks, uh, for his part, has admitted to nothing more than a boozy lunch, unquote, or two at the Russian embassy. But um, his, his critics and his opponents have suggested there's something more substantial than that. Uh, the implication being, of course, that um, there may have been some, this may be some way in which Russia attempted to influence the outcome of the UK referendum on EU membership. Uh, Isabel, is it fair to say that there is a, if not necessarily a critical mass of Merck, if indeed Merck weighs anything, uh, gathering now around the Brexit vote? This does, of course, follow the fact that Vote Leave, which was the official campaign, Leave.eu was not, has already been fined by the Electoral Commission for breaking electoral law. Um, <laughs> Obviously, as James points out, it's 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 politically exceedingly unlikely, in fact, completely unthinkable that the, the this government, at least, is going to stand up and say, actually, on sober reflection, we're not going to do this, it's all off. But does an increasing amount of doubt about the legitimacy of the vote nudge the prospect of a second vote slightly closer into focus? Yes, I think that it probably does. Um, I mean, this is the second scandal around Aaron Banks. If you remember, there was an, there was an earlier one about much more, about £70,000 which had been um, put into uh, the campaign 
in excess of um, uh, the, you know, the, the permitted limit. The question of where this money came from, I mean, it'll be an interesting investigation because I'm sure, I'm sure Mr. Banks's accounts are absolutely impeccable and above board and of transparent. Course, of course, it would, um, it would, it so would be it take long at all. to suggest otherwise. Quite. Um, so so we, we ought to find out. But, I th- but what we don't have, and I think, I'm not sure this situation has ever exactly arisen before, is a mechanism for saying if the financing of the campaign was dodgy, then the vote was illegitimate. Now, we may not have a mechanism for saying that, but certainly that's a political effect. And given that the polls are sort of iffy on Brexit right now, given the march of 700,000 people the other week um, calling for a second referendum, and given the difficulty in Parliament of delivering any kind of deal that is likely to be accepted either by the British Parliament or by the uh, 27 member states who also have to ratify it. It may come to a point when the political parties and, and our great leaders just can't resolve it outside another referendum. And I think that is I think that this episode is just another it's just another little kind of straw on the camel's back. James, is there is there a political opportunity coming into focus for one of Britain's parties? And I think it would be politically extremely unlikely for it to be the, the opposition Labour Party. But for the Liberal Democrats, such as they still are, to be the ones who stand up and say, look, the negotiations for this have been a disaster. Nobody knows what's going on. And we think the referendum was bought. We're going to stand up and say, absolutely, we should call the whole thing off. Well, I mean, the Liberal Democrat Party have obviously said that pretty much all along. They've said that we should call the whole thing off pretty much all along. I mean, but it's, um, I mean, our system in this country doesn't really militate in favour of a third political party. You know, our first past the post parliamentary electoral system um, means that, uh, you know, the Liberal Democrats have never had the representation which the, their share of the vote might have suggested. What is interesting, though, is I think I, I saw some polling, uh, some, some research that was done by one of those groups in this country which are seeking either to campaign for a second referendum or indeed even to reverse the decision of the original one. And some of their findings I was reading last summer were suggesting that um, were it to be proved that there had been wrongdoing or there had been irregularities, then that might persuade more people to call for a second referendum. There are a number of people who are very sort of fatalistic in this country, just saying, well, you know, I didn't want this, but this is where we are, so we have to go through with it. We have to respect the result. But if it were to be proved or if sufficient doubt could be cast upon the way in which the first one was conducted, then that opinion might start to change. Um, It is very difficult to see either of the major political parties Um, having second thoughts at this stage and it's also very difficult to see anyone but them even if there were to be an election having you know the main getting the largest share of the vote or or indeed um, uh, there is a possibility of course the Liberal Democrats might find themselves as they did in 2010 with an opportunity to go into coalition but it's hard to see them signing up with either the Labour or the Conservative Party at the moment I would have thought. Um, Isabel how do you see this one playing out because if if not uh, you know Obviously, neither of the big parties, as we've been discussed, is ever going to stand up and call for the whole thing to be reversed because they do have to pay uh, attention quite rightly to the result of the referendum, which is, as things stand, the settled will of the people. But does something like this or further revelations of this sort potentially buy Theresa May or any given prime minister a bit of space in which they could say, well, hang on, why don't we park this until we can figure out what's happened? Could she launch some sort of massive inquiry of the type which can take a very long time indeed uh, to try and buy some wiggle room on this? 
Um, she could. It's politically pretty difficult. Um, but it's equally difficult to imagine this, imagine, you know, if, if there is a deal, imagine it getting through Parliament smoothly. Because I have to remind you that the settled will of the Scottish people is quite other. So 60% um, voted to remain. And they have a bigger representation in Parliament than the Lib Dems. Um, ditto the will of Northern Ireland. The will of Northern Ireland, sadly, n- not reflected in, in the current leadership of Northern Ireland. But yes, again, they voted to remain. So I, I think that the problems of delivery, if you if you add up, those those elements in Parliament with the disaffected members from both the Labour and the moderate Tories. You know, you've got a very sticky bunch um, who can deny a, a, a majority. And if it would, might give courage to Labour, who have, after all, set up uh, the possibility of opposing the deal with their tests, which are unlikely to be met. So, you know, there is a possibility that this can't be resolved in Parliament. As I said, if that happens, either, either Theresa May can, as you suggest, build in delay to the process there's going to be delay anyway there's i don't think there's any way mm. this is going to be done by march you can go on rolling the ball down the road and maybe you know it will accumulate enough scandal uh, for a rethink or simply um you know the the impossibility of the deal will force a second vote uh, it's really still all to play for in my view well, on as things currently stand, five months from now, the UK will be out of the EU, which I'm sure will stop all the arguing. Um, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with James Rogers and Isabel Hilton. Coming up next, Ukraine severs ties with the Russian Orthodox Church and Taipei's mayor severs ties with his dignity. Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip, our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's Travel Guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are James Rogers and Isabel Hilton. And let's look now at Ukraine, where, for obvious enough reasons, anything branded Russian has become a tough sell these last few years, the more so the further west one travels. This has presented the Russian Orthodox Church in particular with a difficulty, and Ukraine's government is preparing to formally end ties with the church, which date back to the late 17th century. Ukraine plans to establish an independent church, having secured permission from the ecumenical patriarch in Istanbul, in response to which the Russian church has broken ties with Istanbul and accused clerics planning to join the new Ukrainian church of being schismatics. Um, where is that, uh, James, uh, on the, in the hierarchy of uh, ecclesiastical abuse? Is that, is that worse than heretics or not? 
in the context of the Orthodox Church, it's pretty serious. You've probably seen from reading the news reports that Russia has compared this to the Great Schism of 1054. So I, you've got I, long memories in this part of the well, world. Well, exactly. And, and I, for one, wish to make it clear that I'd certainly heard of the Great Schism of 1054 well, before well, this afternoon. a reflection, therefore, of just how very serious this is. <laughs> uh, and but, and, and this, this obviously has got huge sort of doctrinal implications, but it's not just an arcane doctrinal dispute. On the contrary, it's actually a very important important political point, I think, too, which is why Russia is invoking this to try to make it clear how seriously it views this. Um, put simply, this is a, a way in which Ukraine is able further to emphasize the Ukrainian government in particular. So the Ukrainian church is obviously leading this, uh, but the Ukrainian government has welcomed it as a move to be able to move further away from what it sees as an unwelcome Russian sphere of influence. Um, it's curious, of course, that this part of the world, which spent most of the last century trying to stamp out any vestiges of religion, finds itself now at the centre of, of being what part of the world where more and more people, even if church attendances aren't exactly skyrocketing, people readily, in any sort of opinion poll, readily identify themselves um, as Orthodox Christians. So it's very, very important. Think about Mr. Putin, too, um, who spent the early years of his uh, career in the service of an atheist state as a KGB officer, now never misses an opportunity opportunity to be either photographed with a senior figure from the church or to take part in some of the the more public rituals of the Russian Orthodox Church most notably um, this winter at the coldest time of year it normally falls in January Orthodox Epiphany he followed the tradition of uh, uh, of immersing himself in in a hole cut in a frozen lake um, so he's very very keen this is very much part of his public image so any way in which one of the countries close to Russia which it sees within its traditional sphere of influence any way in which they can break away from that is a significant political poke in the eye for him. Uh, Isabel, are we learning here just how important uh, an emissary or influence or lever Russia sees the Orthodox Church as being in its immediate geostrategic ambit? Absolutely. I mean, this has been, you know, one of the things that has revived under under Putin after, of course, the long period of famine and in the in the um, years of the USSR. Um, but the Orthodox Church, I'm not a great expert on the Orthodox Church, but it does have this um, practice of autocephalic, they're autocephalic. Um, uh, you know, in other words, they can be independent. You, you may be the first person ever to have said the word autocephalic on Monocle 24. I may be the last one. It sounds like <laughs> a kind of brain disease. But, um, I but discussion with my students about whether that was a word you could use for a general news audience. Actually. <laughs> and where, where did where did the, I, it wasn't actually really? <laughs> but they well, it, it means that, that, that you can have within the within the the doctrine you can have as, as it were it, it, it churches with independent heads so um and you have the example of the of the patriarch of constantinople the head of the eastern orthodox church after the great schism um who is is technically um has to be a Turkish citizen uh, of, but but with a Greek faith, uh, so it's a it's a complicated set of arrangements. And I don't think the Russian the Russian Orthodox Church would like to dominate all other Orthodox churches and can't, and and that's now a problem within I guess Putin's politics. Uh, but it has enormous 
influence still. The the Orthodox Church has um, followers uh, all across Latin America, for example, as well as the Mediterranean, and or the, the different Orthodox churches. But I'm sure Russia would love to see them all under the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church. And I, it's not going to happen. Just as a final quick thought on this, uh, James, can Russia, all things considered, really be that surprised uh, when countries around it start wishing to detach it themselves as far as they can from Russian institutions? No, I don't think, I mean, particularly not in the case of Ukraine, but I think probably Russia hoped that this was one of those um, historic ties which has, has bound the, 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 the two nations together for so much of their shared history. And, and to see this um, split in such a spectacular way is, is another way of, of Ukraine in the shape of the current government and indeed the current church saying we don't want to be part of this anymore. Okay, well, we turn finally tonight to the latest iteration of the eternal mystery of middle-aged politicians attempting to be ostentatiously down with the kids. In this instance, the culprit is Ko Wenjie, mayor of Taipei, who has tried his hand at hip-hop in company with Taiwanese rapper Chun Yan. Take it away. It is my view that Chuck D will probably sleep fairly soundly tonight. Um, Isabel, do we think his honour has has quite pulled that one off? Oh dear, oh dear, yes. Well, moving swiftly on here. (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't give up the day job if if I I were him. Uh, No, it's pretty excruciating. Uh, Well, he does see it, James, as part of his day job. It is his message. There is unmistakable the the doing the right thing, thing, um, which is you know a, a sentiment one can only applaud. But is this the way to go about communicating it if you are a 59-year-old former surgeon, now the mayor of Taipei? It's not. Um, I mean, I think a good, uh, were I a politician's advisor, I think my standard piece of advice would be anything to do with youth culture, don't. You know, I, it's really, I don't think uh, the rap video worked with the greatest of uh, respect to the mayor. Um, and I was just thinking on the way here about some other embarrassing things. I mean, William Hague, who was the former leader of the Conservative <laughs> Party uh, and who then became, you know, a very plausible and creditable foreign secretary, particularly considering some of the people who succeeded <laughs> him. Uh, and I thought, it was he who wore a baseball cap. It and was. I, and it he was. comes up as the second automatic suggestion in an internet search engine. So it's one of those things he's just never, ever going to live down, I think. I mean, talking of mayors, the mayor of this city, um, Sadiq Khan, I remember reading an interview with him recently when... Um, he, I think, a reporter asked him if he was considering going on Strictly Come Dancing, which is one of those dancing shows uh, that's seen all around the world. In this country, it's called Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, celebrities dance with professional dancers. And he said that on no account would his daughters ever live it down. So I think actually, <laughs> actually, speaking as the father of two daughters who are big Strictly Come Dancing fans, and I occasionally threaten them with the idea that I might try and go on, um, you're much better off listening to the young people rather than your advisors before embarking on things like this, if you're a politician, probably. I mean, Isabel, politicians cannot leave this one alone. They, they all want 
they all, I mean, politicians want to be liked by everybody, but they especially want to be liked by young people, that idea that if you get them young, then you've got them for life. Does anybody ever get this one right? Well, there, there are two British politicians, uh, both been mayor of London, who, who just are natural showmen, whether you like them or not. One was Ken Livingstone, Indeed. who was very witty and could sort of get away with pretty much everything. Did lead, the other was, lead, he did lead vocals on a blur track. Absolutely. And, and then there was Boris Johnson, who managed to dangle off a, off a wire without particularly losing credibility or maybe he his credibility was low to begin with but they're kind of you know boris is you know good at clowning and and ken is is very witty most politicians are just i mean the excruciating image of theresa may trying to dance uh with another you know that video will never die uh, and, and the problem is but she has managed to kind of turn that into a gag against herself and actually not a bad one barely yeah she just about managed that at the at the, at the party conference but you if you still if you go back to the original, go back to the fountainhead. You you still you still cringe. Um, the, the Chinese produce equally excruciating rap videos, but they have the good sense not to put politicians in them. They did a they did an absolutely terrible rap video in praise of the Belt and Road, which I do warmly recommend right. I, on, I, for I, a rainy afternoon. I, I shall, in, in all seriousness, look that up later. But <laughs> James, is the key? Is it one of those things that it is? It, it's just about authenticity. If it, if it's actually in you, if you actually know about this stuff, if you actually are at home with this stuff, then fine. But yeah. otherwise. You we end up, as we've seen before, in the absurd position of it was Mingy's Campbell, I think, when he was the, you know, liberal democratic leader of, of distinguished age, I think it's fair to say, pretending to have an opinion about the Arctic monkeys, which, you know, he didn't. Yeah, and I mean, it is astonishing because, you, you know, whenever there's a, any sort of public appearance, politicians spend a very, very long time preparing to try to guide the conversation or the discussion into areas in which they see that they have strengths. And here, uh, in this kind of public appearances of trying to be down with the kids, that sort of logic... It seems they completely abandon and just and just forget about it, but and it very 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 rarely works. Um, uh, I suppose as a politician, you have to sort of have a view on everything, like you know the latest soap shows, the latest reality shows. But I think it's sometimes it's best to proceed with why caution. Why do they have to do that? Why don't they just say, "I've got no idea about any of this stuff. I don't watch these things. I've mm. you know I've got a fairly important and time-consuming job." Well, at that point, they're immediately out of touch, aren't they? If they don't share the concerns about who's going to get kicked off which reality show, then uh, then you know. So they, so they they have to have an opinion, even though, as you probably rightly suspect, Andrew, they don't watch this stuff and they're they're reading briefs or reading the Financial Times or whatever yeah, else they're reading. But there is the vanity thing. I mean, appearing on on Strictly Come Dancing is a sure sign your political career is over. Indeed. Um, yes. So so you you have to ask, you know, what is the point of doing it? And it, or it and the most unlikely politicians do it. <laughs> um, so um, you know, I guess it's just vanity. Well, fortunately, we know of absolutely no examples of somebody leveraging a career in ludicrous television game shows into high political office so so yeah, thank good relief, thank, yeah. thank goodness nothing terrible <laughs> could ever come of that that does bring us to the end of today's show james rogers and isabel hilton thank you for joining us at midori house the show was produced by bill luti research by fernando augusto pacheco and barbara maimone our studio manager was kenya scarlet midori house returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 london i'm andrew muller thank you for listening 